This episode, Pediatric Polytrauma, Pearls and Pitfalls, marks the final topic in our list of about a dozen topics that came out of a nationwide needs assessment in our three-year-long fruitful collaboration with the fantastic nonprofit education organization, TREK, Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank Trek for all the great work they've done and encourage you to check them out at trek.ca. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get the call in from the field that there's an injured child who's tachycardic and comatose, the first thing I do is mentally prepare. Because if I don't, I'm basically going to freak out and make a mess of things. So I take a few deep breaths. I tell myself, I can do this. I'll visualize the steps I'll have to take and then spring into action to start preparing the team. Now, from what I've learned from Andrew Prechisoniak and Chris Hicks about team-based preparation, I asked the team four questions. First, what do we know? Second, what do we expect to see or what are the possibilities? Third, what do we do with contingencies if actions fail? And fourth, Who's going to do what or role assignment? Then we're ready to deal with one of the most challenging situations in EM, the pediatric polytrauma patient. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. To help fill in all the chunks of knowledge, options, actions, and decisions we need to be aware of when it comes to pediatric polytrauma, we have two new voices to EM cases, two prominent pediatric trauma leaders and educators, Dr. Fuad Al-Naji from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, and Dr. Sue Benno from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. So welcome to EM cases, Sue. Thank you very much for having me here. And welcome to EM cases. Fuad. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. So we're going to try and cover some key topics in pediatric polytrauma. So first, we're going to talk about some of the general anatomic and physiologic differences between pediatric and adult trauma. And then we're going to basically go through the primary and secondary surveys. We'll talk about airway. You know, should we be thinking the old ABC or should we be thinking like CAB like we do in adults? And we'll talk about oxygenation and RSI, BVM, oral airways. Then we'll go on to talk about circulation and compensatory shock and volume resuscitation, what the signs of shock in kids are. Uh, Then we're going to go on to disability, and we'll remind listeners of AVPU because the GCS is just too difficult in kids. We'll talk about severe head injury and preventing and treating increased ICP. We'll talk about C-spine immobilization, clearance, and imaging. Uh, We'll move on to chest trauma, then abdominal trauma, and we'll talk about how to stop bleeding. We'll talk about tranexamic acid, TEG, and Rotem. And then finally, if we have time, we'll talk about how to prepare for transfer to a trauma center. So without further ado, let's jump into the first case. You get a call patched into your ED that coming your way as a seven-year-old girl. She's a restrained front passenger of a car going 100 kilometers an hour that loses control on the highway on some Canadian black ice in the middle of winter and crashes into the highway barrier. All the airbags are released. There's evidence of passenger intrusion. She had to be extricated from the vehicle. The driver of the car was taken to the local adult trauma center in critical condition, and your patient has obvious head, 
chest, and abdominal trauma. Her vital signs on arrival are a heart rate of 140, a blood pressure of 100 over 70, a respiratory rate of 40, and an O2 sat of 93% on a non-rebreather. Her GCS is 14. She rolls into your resuscitation bay, and your team is ready to take action. So, before we dive into some of the pearls and pitfalls of airway management and such, I think it's really important to get a general sense of the anatomic and physiologic differences between children and adults that we need to be aware of in our approach to the polytrauma patient. So, Dr. Benno and El Naji, let's take turns going through some of the most important anatomical and physiological differences. Dr. Benno, let's start with you. So we'll start with some of the anatomic stuff. So what are, what are some of the most important anatomical considerations for the pediatric polytrauma patient? All right. So in general, kids are smaller. They have smaller body mass. They have higher body surface area. So they tend to lose heat and distribute force along their entire body. So when they're faced with a significant mechanism, polytrauma is the rule. Kids also have higher rates of head injuries and different cervical spine injuries than adults do. And this is primarily because their head-to-body ratio is much larger. So they have large uh, heads with lots of water, reduced myelin. They tend to have more diffuse axonal injury and shearing mechanisms and higher rates of cerebral edema. As well, they have open sutures and they can tolerate intracranial pressure rises better than adults. So kids are able to tolerate increases in ICP better than adults, but when they fall off the cliff, they fall off the cliff. So it's very important that uh, we realize that when we're dealing with kids. All right. So that's kind of the head. What about, Dr. Benno, you, you had mentioned that we, kids do have different kinds of neck injuries. Dr. al Naji, what are some of the anatomical differences we have to think about with the neck and the airway? So in regards to the airway, um, kids have prominent occipits, which may affect the position of the airway and may lead to uh, airway obstruction. Also with obstruction, they have a prominent tongue, which really falls back and can block their airway. As well, a lot of the younger kids have big adenoids, which can lead to more obstruction. And uh, when you go and, and, and look at their airway while intubating them, they have a very floppy, U-shaped epiglottis that can really, you know, hang in there and be on your way. So the epiglottis, try to make it your friend as much as possible when you're intubating somebody and try and lift it out of the way. In regards to the uh, neck and C-spine, the kids have larger um, head-to-body size, which can actually affect their C-spine when they have an acceleration deceleration injury and can lead to C-spine fractures. So be aware of those whenever you see somebody with a head trauma. Okay, so that big head causes a lot of differences in our approach to the polytrauma patient. Let's move down the body. What about the belly? Yeah, that's different too. <laughs> so kids have a very different thoracoabdominal torso than adults do. They have proportionally larger organs that are less protected by the rib cage and the pelvis. So the bladder is actually an intra-abdominal organ. The kidneys are more mobile and so are at risk in deceleration injuries. And the liver and spleen are clearly the most commonly injured solid organs. And unlike in adults, pelvic or femur fractures in young children aren't usually as hemodynamically significant. However, once kids are skeletally mature, then 
the injuries resemble those of adults. In terms of their chest, kids have a very pliable rib cage with less musculature and the mediastinum is very mobile. And that actually allows for major thoracic injury without obvious external signs of trauma. So they can develop tension pneumothoraces quite quickly. And while fractures of the ribs and sternum are much less common because of all the cartilage that they have, pulmonary contusions and pneumothoraces are frequently found. Okay, so rather than confer pneumothorax and flail chests and that sort of thing that we usually look for first in adults, it's pulmonary contusions that are the vast majority of chest injuries in kids. Okay, so that's a little bit about the anatomical differences. And then, of course, in the extremities, kids are a lot more likely to fracture bones rather than rip tendons, which is the opposite in adults. Let's get a little bit into the physiologic differences. So, Dr. Alnaji, what are some of the physiologic differences that we need to understand when we're approaching the polytrauma patient? The kids usually have a higher metabolic rate, uh, which really leads to an increased oxygen and glucose demands. And they have an increased respiratory rate, and they lose a lot of fluids through that. The other really important thing about their physiological reactions to trauma is a lot of the kids have the ability to compensate when they're stressed, when they're losing blood. Uh, A lot of the kids can present in compensated shock, which can go unrecognized if you don't look for signs of compensated shock. And when the blood pressure is low, then you're really towards the end of the road and you really are talking about near rest in those patients. So be aware when somebody is hypotensive in a pediatric patient and try and uh, resuscitate them before you get there. So those are some of the anatomical and physiologic differences we need to know in general between kids and adults when it comes to the pediatric polytrauma patient. Let's talk specifically about airway. So one of the major shifts in recent years in the management of adult trauma patients is from ABC to CAB, with an emphasis on improving the circulation to vital organs as a priority. There's been some suggestion that stabilizing the airway in the vast majority of trauma patients can wait for a while and that we should be concentrating on volume resuscitation and decompressing the chest first and foremost. Now, has this kind of shift from ABC to CAB been similar in pediatric trauma or is airway still the first priority in pediatric trauma? So um, there was a change uh, in 2010 with the AHA recommending a switch to CAB versus ABC and looking at the arrest patients. And we extrapolated that to, to more of an assessment in our primary survey of whether to do ABC versus CAB. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of evidence to just one way or another. And in a trauma population, especially if you're not really working in a pediatric center, it probably is important to do something and do it well again and again. And with the lack of evidence, one way or another, we would tend to uh, recommend going CAB versus ABC in pediatrics, especially if you're not working in a pediatric center. And as you mentioned earlier, I think most of the time in a trauma patients, when you have problems, it's more related to hypovolemia and bleeding. So addressing those, whether it's a bleeding person or whether it's a pneumothorax, it probably is important to address those earlier on. And the airway can wait as you address the circulation issue. Yeah, I think that's very valid. I think with the switch to damage control resuscitation over the last few years, that that need to recognize catastrophic bleeding and act on that for a survival advantage is paramount in adult trauma. And I think that makes a lot of sense also for kids who suffer from penetrating trauma or blast injuries. And so I think that's very valid. And so I would almost 
make it more of a C, A, B, C approach, though, <laughs> where the initial C is dealing with catastrophic bleeding. And then recognizing, though, that in pediatrics, respiratory illnesses and airway issues actually still are more prevalent. And most of the pediatric trauma that we see is blunt pediatric trauma. And so I do think that managing hypoxia, managing hypotension is equally important. So I think the order I think of it now is a C, A, B, C approach, where you deal with catastrophic bleeding, but then you follow the ABC approach of traditional primary surveys. Great. So C-A-B-C. So forget ABC, forget C-A-B, it's C-A-B-C. <laughs> C-A-B-C. <laughs> awesome. And Dr. Benham, can you run through for us briefly the key aspects of your primary survey? So just remind our listeners what the primary survey is and then how it kind of changes in pediatrics. Sure, absolutely. So the primary survey is that initial approach to a trauma patient where you have to identify and manage any life-threatening conditions. And the ABCDE approach that we've all been taught in trauma patients is not actually different whether you're a child or whether you're an adult. But there are some nuances to kids that people should know about. So some of the key differences, I guess, with airway and cervical spine control is that Kids have much smaller airways. They tend to be obstructed more. And so equipment size is critically important in managing the airway. So whenever you're dealing with an airway in a kid, you do have to ensure that you have the right-sized equipment, a half-size up, a half-size below, ready to go. Cervical collars are not designed for kids with short necks. They don't fit well, even though they're size-dependent, sized for age, pardon me. They still don't tend to fit very well. And we know that cervical collars, if they don't fit well, can actually have some harmful effects. So sometimes, actually, just manual inline stabilization, which is what the UK has actually moved towards, or using blocks or sandbags with tape across the head is actually better than an ill-fitting collar. So that's important to keep in mind for kids. Couldn't agree more. I, yeah. When I think when you're looking at breathing, you know, very similar. We talked about the differences in the pliable chest and the differences in a lack of external signs of trauma. So you have to be aware that just because you don't see a flail chest or a sucking chest wound, it doesn't mean that there isn't something going on there. Sometimes the signs of inadequate respiration are subtle in children, and you may not always appreciate the range of normal vital signs that kids have. So, you know, tachypnea, you may not appreciate, or even bradypnea for a young child. Actually, more likely you're not appreciating because that's more likely uh, what you're expecting to see when you assess an adult. Because kids use their diaphragms so much to breathe, if there is any kind of abdominal trauma, so abdominal hemorrhage, or if they've been crying because they're scared and they're anxious and they filled up their stomach with air, then that's likely to impair how they breathe. Just remember, if you have a child who has swallowed a lot of air because they're upset or they're crying, they may look like they're in more extremis than they actually are, and consider deflating their stomach with an NG or an OG tube. And that may change your child who looks very poor to a much more happy child. Uh, circulation, Dr. al Naji already talked about some of the differences around shock. Certainly, we do pay attention to vital signs, particularly tachycardia. We do also note blood pressure, but that's less important to us in the primary survey as opposed to the secondary signs of peripheral vasoconstriction. So those signs like capillary refill, which can be influenced by ambient temperature, modeling, cool skin, thready pulses, those sorts of things we're looking for to pick up compensated shock. And then acting on any signs of shock that we see. And as we talked about, access in kids can be difficult. And so if you're having trouble, if the kid's sick, you may need to place some IO lines in early. 
with disability, the main difference really is around the Glasgow Coma Score, which is not in and of itself useful for young infants and kids who can't cooperate. So a pediatric GCS score has been developed and modified. And that is actually an accurate tool for kids. But you're right, it's really hard to know that off the top of your head when you're in the middle of a trauma resuscitation. So I agree. I like the AVPU score. And that's the one I tend to use as well. Checking a blood glucose is important for young infants because an altered or a low blood glucose can definitely contribute to their altered mental status. And then addressing pain with appropriate analgesia and anxiety, whether it's family presence, distraction techniques, or just having a calm person at the head of the bed can make a huge difference in how that trauma resuscitation runs for you. Exposure is very important because kids tend to lose a lot of heat because of their large body surface area. They're often cold when they come in. They often have a lot of fluids, whether it's urine or what have you on their clothes. So as you're stripping down their clothes, you want to make sure that you're replacing that with warm blankets, that the ambient temperature in the room is warm and that any fluids you're giving is warm. And then using bear huggers or overhead heaters or what have you just to keep their temperature up. And the last thing that is different about a pediatric primary survey that is not part of the traditional ABCDE ATLS approach is family presence. And it's very standard for pediatric trauma centers across North America to employ family presence. You need to have some personnel who are able to be with that family and liaise with the clinical care team in order to be successful. But there's a lot of evidence that demonstrates reduced stress on the family and patient without compromising team dynamics or medical care. Okay, so that was an awesome review of the differences in pediatrics versus adults in general in the primary survey. Dr. Al-Naji, can you walk us through the steps of stabilizing the airway in the pediatric polytrauma patient? So uh, when I think of a pediatric airway assistant management, I think of the three Ps, patency, position, and protection. And to establish patency, use a large-bore suction catheter or yonker to clear the airway from blood, secretions, and foreign bodies. An oral airway can be your friend in an obtunded patient where you want to get that tongue out of the way to establish the airway patency. Right, so that big floppy tongue we were talking about before, kids have a higher, a higher risk of obstruction than adults, so your oral airway is one of those first things you want to reach for, for Definitely. sure. Definitely, get that tongue out of the way for sure. Okay. All right, so what about positioning? You know, I find with positioning kids, they almost always come in flex because of that huge occiput again. We've got a trauma patient here who's, you're trying to maintain C-spine immobilization, but they're all flexed and crunched up. How do you go about positioning your pediatric trauma patient who's in C-spine precautions to help maximize your chances of getting that airway? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think the positioning issue is really relevant for young kids because those are the kids that have the very large occiputs that will be flexed forward and taken out of neutral position when they come in on a backboard. There are some backboards that actually have occipital wells where they have cutouts for the occiput or a depression for the occiput to sit in. And those kids are in much more neutral alignment when they come in. Well, wow, I want one of those. Yeah, I know. I've great. seen those used in, in the States all the time, but here we don't have them. So the kids do come in flexed. So in order to properly align them, one of the ways to do that for young children is to raise their torso, essentially. So whether it's blankets or something to elevate the entire torso to try and bring them up into a better neutral position. Like not just under the shoulders, but actually under their torso to lift up the entire torso to try and get them into more of a neutral alignment. 
Okay. Okay, good. So that's the position. So what's next in sort of our RSI with kids in terms of trauma? So um, I would think of protecting the airway in a patient with GCSF 8 or less, as recommended by the ATLS. And I think preparation is key in, in all intubation. So if you decide to intubate, you want to have your equipment ready, I would recommend having an ET tube size that's one size smaller and one size bigger, just in case. And there are formulas for cuffed and uncuffed ET tubes. So the formula for an uncuffed ET tube would be age over four plus four. And the formula for an, a cuffed ET tube would be age over four plus 3.5. You would want to pre-exonate these patients as kids have low functional residual capacity and have very low oxygen reserve. So they really become hypoxic very, very quickly, much, much more quicker than adults. You want to pre-oxygenate those patients, and there are different ways to do that. You can either put them on nasal cannula, an underbreather mask, or actually give them 100% oxygen or close to 100% oxygen through a bag mask valve as you get ready to intubate them. When it comes to pre-oxygenation in adults, what we do almost universally now at our place is we put on the nasal cannula, we crank it up to 15, and we put a mask on top of that. And we just have the nasal cannula going the entire time during the intubation all the way until they're put onto a vent. Um, is that something that you guys would recommend in kids as well? I think that's a really good idea. And there's some evidence that using nasal cannula or, or even high-flow nasal cannula, in some cases, maybe not in trauma, to pre-oxygenate people as you, you set up to intubate. Okay, great. So that's pre-oxygenation. Next, I guess we want to get into pre-induction and induction. There's atropine and lidocaine and fentanyl. I know it's controversial and the evidence isn't great for any of these things, but what would you recommend for your, let's say, run-of-the-mill polytrauma pediatric patient in terms of pre-induction medications? Most pediatric centers would use atropine, 0.02 milligram per kilo, with a maximum of 0.5 milligram in any patient under one year of age. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of evidence for using atropine in any pediatric age group except the neonatal age group, but most people would use it in practice and give it anyway in anybody under one. Most other people also will use or have atropine ready, drawn up and ready to go in all other patients, just in case if there is any uh, reactive bradycardia due to a vagal response when you manipulate the airway. Okay, so that's atropine. Uh, Dr. Benno, do you have any opinion on, I know it's kind of controversial, so in your experience, do you tend to give atropine to every kid under one or just some of them or depending on how fast you need that airway? What's your take on using atropine for pre-induction? Well, I feel like atropine is slowly being phased out of pediatric RSI. Uh, when I started training, we were using it under eight and then it's under one. And now the last PALS guidelines has suggested not to use it at all. With that being said, I actually do have it drawn up. I have been burned in those situations where there has been bradycardia and it has been very helpful. So personally, I actually still probably would use it under one and just have it available for other intubations that I do. Okay. So practically speaking from the Canadian experts here, you should probably consider giving atropine at 0.02 milligrams per kilogram for kids under one year of age. Have it ready regardless, because if that kid suddenly goes bratty, then you've got it right there. You don't have to give it to kids under one because it is controversial. I imagine that if 
for whatever reason, you have very little time and you just need to get that tube in that you're going to be skipping over the atropine. Okay. Um, And what about lidocaine and fentanyl? This is another really controversial thing, even in adults, giving lidocaine and fentanyl to help blunt the raised ICP by intubating the child. What should be the take home in terms of uh, lidocaine and fentanyl? Is it, should you use it if you have time, not use it if you don't have time? What's your practice? And that's very controversial, but as far as we know, there's no evidence to support the use of IV lidocaine as a pretreatment in patients with a head injury. So we tend not to use it in practice. Yeah, we've phased it out of our airway algorithm as well. This is for lidocaine because the evidence is so poor. It's an extra step. And really for it to even be effective, it has to be administered three to five minutes before mm-hmm. before you intubate. So rarely in these situations is the intubation that artful that we're able to get the lidocaine in that quickly before we complete the RSI. So we we don't really use lidocaine very much, but we have it in there as a consideration for people who want to. We do use fentanyl, actually, as part of our induction protocol with our induction agents with the idea that it does help attenuate that response. Okay, so fentanyl in the dose of 2 to 5 micrograms per kilogram, and it should be at least 3 minutes before you actually put the tube in. Um, so again, I guess if you've got time... It's definitely a consideration. If you don't have time, you're not given any drugs. You're just getting that tube in. Yeah, I think that, you know, when we when we look back, most of the children who are intubated for trauma are intubated for neurological reasons. And so if you are intubating them and you want to use a pre-induction agent, then it is useful to get fentanyl in. If you can do it with a reasonable time frame, it makes sense. If you simply just need to get the tube in, then use an induction agent and a paralytic and off you go. Okay. I imagine with most pediatric traumas are blunt trauma. And in most pediatric traumas, you do have time to get the airway. Because as we were saying, it's usually not the chest that's the main injury. It's usually the head anyhow. And with kids with head injuries, you usually do have the time to really go through your RSI steps carefully and prepare properly and and use the right pre-induction agents. Okay, so just to sum that up, in terms of pre-induction, you can consider giving atropine under one year of age at 0.02 milligrams per kilogram, but it's optional. Just have it ready for any vagal response to tongue manipulation that you might have. And lidocaine's kind of out. And in terms of fentanyl, it is an option if you have time but make sure that you give it at least three minutes prior to induction. Moving on to induction then in our RSI for the pediatric trauma patient, we use ketamine for almost everything in emergency medicine now, (laughs) whether it's the agitated patient or the depressed patient or for the airway or for asthma. Is it true for pediatric polytrauma as well? Is ketamine your sort of go-to induction agent? Yeah, it's becoming more and more used in pediatrics and in trauma as as more and more evidence suggests that it actually is a good drug to be used in in the trauma setting and would not cause a worrisome increase in ICP as previously thought. I personally use ketamine as my induction agent at a dose of 2 to 3 milligram per kilo or can use other induction agents like fentanyl or in some centers that have etomidate. A lot of people use etomidate as their induction agent. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I love ketamine and think it's great for pediatric care and pediatric trauma. Do you love ketamine like from a personal experience? Uh, <laughs> great drug. It's great. It's great. <laughs> you know, the K-hole. <laughs> All right. So now that we've gone through the step-by-step RSI in our pediatric trauma patient, let's talk kind of pearls and pitfalls. Dr. Benno, what are some of the key pearls and pitfalls in airway management of the polytrauma child? Have your weight-based drugs drawn up in advance. That is very helpful to improving efficiency in pediatric resuscitation. And Braslow tapes and other tools can help with this. Great. So again, part of the preparing your team when you get that call in, one of the things you can do if you have time is just draw up everything that you think you might need based on the patient's weight. I guess that's one of the first questions you want to ask uh, when they patch in is what's the patient's age, and if they can give you the estimated weight. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay. So that's one of the key preparatory things. Other pearls and pitfalls? Yeah, I think you have to recognize that sometimes because, as Dr. Alnaji said, kids have lower FRCs and sometimes have a shorter apnea time. And so you have to recognize that sometimes you need to do a modified RSI and may need to give them extra oxygen, whether it's apneic oxygenation or positive pressure ventilation during that period. We talked about cuff tubes. We use cuff tubes for all ages in trauma. And again, just I'll say it again, early placement of a nasal or orogastric tube to decompress a child's stomach because they usually come in very, very inflated. Okay. What about the old cricoid pressure? We rarely use cricoid pressure in adults anymore. What about in kids? We don't tend to use cricoid pressure routinely in pediatric RSI anymore. It doesn't take very much force to obstruct the airway. It reduces visualization and so sometimes often causes more harm than good. What I do like to use actually personally is external laryngeal manipulation, which I actually do find quite helpful and teach my uh, residents and fellows that technique as well. Burp. Yeah, a form of burp, but ELM, the way... I used to do airway courses with Rich Levitan, and his big thing was external laryngeal manipulation, where essentially you bring the cords into view yourself and then have somebody else place their hand where you need to if you're having trouble visualizing. And I find that that often converts what seems like a difficult visualization into an easy airway. So another pitfall is overbagging children. It's really important not to overbag. Ensure that there's proper equipment size and the methods of positive pressure ventilation are used to reduce the risk of barotrauma in kids. All pediatric bag valve mask units should be equipped with a safety pop-off valve along with a manometer that will prevent overbagging and prevent barotrauma. And just as a general rule, each breath that you administer should be enough just to make the chest rise. Okay. So yeah, we all get very excited when there's a sick pediatric patient and we all tend to bag a lot faster than we think we are. Sometimes it's actually helpful having a metronome Mm -hmm. or someone actually counted out loud so that they don't overbag. I find that very useful. Okay. So just to review some of the pearls and pitfalls in airway management in the pediatric trauma patient. First, Don't forget to decompress the stomach early with an NG tube. Never use cricoid pressure. You might want to use some external laryngeal manipulation to help visualize the airway. Be sure not to overbag and also be sure not to intubate too deeply. All right. Now, for those paramedics that listen to EM cases, they might be wondering about the pre-hospital setting in terms of airway for these sick trauma kids. I understand there was a study out of JAMA a while back showing that BVM might be more effective and safer 
than endotracheal intubation for these kind of kids. Dr. Alnaji, can you just tell us a little bit about the study and kind of what the take-home message was from that? Sure. So uh, in a landmark pre-hospital study in 2000 published in JAMA, Gosh and colleagues published that there was actually good evidence that bag mass ventilation is as effective and actually maybe safer than endotracheal intubation in the pre-hospital settings. They had 830 patients randomized to either bag mass ventilation or endotracheal intubation that showed either the same outcome or actually a trend towards a better neuro outcome in the group of bag mass ventilation. So we would actually not recommend the paramedics intubate in the field, especially if you have a short transport time and you can bag the patient. Okay. And Dr. Benno, there was another study out of the European Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery on Pediatric Polytrauma Management, and it suggested that a straight laryngoscope is better than a curved laryngoscope for these kinds of kids. Why is this and what do you usually use? Well, I do use a straight blade often. It's better for visualizing the larynx and vocal cords in young kids, certainly less than two years of age. And some users like it better for older children as well. It's kind of what you're used to. But this is mostly because young children have that floppy U-shaped epiglottis that's easier to manipulate with a straight blade. And the technique is different. So you use the blade to actually pick up the epiglottis, bringing the cords into view, which is different from a curved blade. Also, a straight blade may be more useful when there is a concern for C-spine injury because that technique results in less motion of the neck. Oh, okay. So when it comes to trauma, then it sounds like the straight blade might be a better option, especially when you need to maintain the C-spine immobilization because it might give you a better view. Possibly. I'm not sure that's always true. I think that probably what's more important is that you use whichever blade you're comfortable with. Certainly in the younger children where their larynx is so much more anterior and the epiglottis is very floppy, the straight blade is a much better blade for visualizing the cords. So we've talked about RSI, we've talked about airway, and I want to talk about circulation now, and in particular, compensatory shock and volume resuscitation. Now, we've talked about pediatric shock and volume resuscitation in previous pediatric EM podcasts, but I think it's worth reiterating in the context of trauma. So, so first, Dr. Elnaji, what are the clinical signs of pediatric shock that we should be looking out for in these kids? And then we'll get to what the most common pitfalls are in assessing kids for shock. As we know, hypovolemia is the most common cause of shock in the pediatric trauma patient. And the recognition early and treatment is really critical in such patients. Compensated shock occurs when there has been a significant blood loss, but blood pressure usually is maintained by vasoconstriction and tachycardia. Tachycardia is the first sign of hypovolemia in children, and due to their physiological reserve, blood pressure usually is maintained despite a loss of up to about 30 to 40% of their blood volume. Therefore, in a trauma patient who actually looks like they're cool and tachycardic, you should consider them to be shocky until proven otherwise. Other clinical signs of shock would include a narrow pulse pressure, skin modeling, delayed cap refill, cool extremities, a decreased level of consciousness, and adult response to pain. Okay, so suffice to say, don't wait for the blood pressure to fall. And in terms of getting access... You know, we can get big fat peripheral AC, we can go straight for IOs, we can get a central line. For the community doc who's doing the initial resuscitation of a trauma patient, what do you recommend in terms of access? 
Yeah. So pediatric access is generally difficult anyway. And so now if you have a young child who is cold, who's volume deplete, you really don't want to spend a lot of time trying to get peripheral IVs that are unattainable. So if you have a sick kid who you need access very quickly, we recommend that you go ahead and get an IO. You can try peripheral IVs. PALS recommends two attempts or 90 seconds, but then really you need to get an IO. IOs will work well. They're great devices, especially now that we have drills as opposed to the old manual IOs, which were much more difficult to insert. So IO is a very rapid, reliable, vascular access site for critically ill children. The concern with IOs is that fluids are not going to flow as fast through an IO as they would through an IV or with a large bore central line. And you have to be careful because they are a temporary line. So really, once you have fluid resuscitated, you do need to establish secondary access. Okay, so suffice to say that in a really sick kid, you might want to do multiple IOs right off the bat. And then as soon as you've resuscitated, got through your primary and secondary survey, you really should be thinking about getting either a couple of good peripheral lines or a central line. Yeah, absolutely, because your IOs just don't last forever, (laughs) unfortunately. Right. Okay. And in terms of how much fluid you give before you start a red cell transfusion in the pediatric trauma patient who comes in in shock, you know, in adults, there's no agreed upon target blood pressure. But the latest literature on this question that Chris Hicks was just telling me about recently actually suggested that we might not need to do any fluid resuscitation if there's three conditions that are met. And those three conditions are that the patient's mentating well that their peripheral pulses are palpable, and that their systolic blood pressure is greater than 70. So there is adult literature that suggests that maybe we shouldn't be giving any fluid before we go to blood as long as they pass these three tests. So it's kind of permissive hypotension with some clinical evidence that the patient is perfusing their end organs. So what about kids? The big question is, how much fluid do you give What are you targeting? Are you targeting heart rate? Are you targeting blood pressure? You know, we talked about how if they're in shock from a blood pressure perspective, then they're peri-arrest already. We want to try and get to them before they're peri-arrest, obviously. How much fluid do we give? How fast? What's our target? Yeah. So this is a very super relevant and topical question, and there's a lot of debate around it. I'll address the first question, which is how much fluid before blood? And the bottom line is we don't actually have any great data telling us how much crystalloid or how much fluid we should be giving before blood. Traditionally for kids, there's been this motto of fluid, 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 then blood meant to imply up to 60 cc's per kilo of crystalloid prior to transfusing PAC cells. The last ATLS edition still recommends considering blood after 40 to 60 mils per kilo of crystalloid and ongoing signs of hemodynamic instability in kids. But with all the attention on damage control resuscitation and the improved mortality benefit seen in adult hemorrhagic shock when more restrictive strategies are applied, some evidence for crystalloid-induced harm in pediatric trauma exists, but it's less compelling and not definitive. And there's only two retrospective studies that have examined crystalloid volumes in children who've received low and high volume transfusions. 
One study noted adverse effects with more than 50 to 100 mils per kilo of crystalloid in 24 hours, but early balanced transfusion didn't actually improve outcomes and was associated with higher mortality than the group that had just received crystalloid up front. And a second paper similarly found that excessive crystalloid resuscitation was associated with increased hospital length of stay, need for mechanical ventilation, but not ARDS and multiple organ system failure. And the authors concluded that injured children appear relatively resistant to some of the adverse effects of early high-volume fluid resuscitation, but unfortunately there's no clear data answering the question of how much crystalloid before blood. So a take-home point, I think, is that a reasonable recommendation for pediatrics is administering between 10 to 40 mils per kilo of warmed isotonic fluids in children with compensated shock and observing for markers of end-organ perfusion like mental status, urine output, reduction in tachycardia, normalization of peripheral cutaneous signs. And while there's no evidence for this goal-directed approach, experience tells us that children respond very well to this strategy and most do not actually require transfusion. It's very different for the child who presents in decompensated shock with active bleeding. This child needs blood, not crystalloid, and should be transfused as soon as blood is available. Okay, so in that really, really sick kid, there's going to be a delay in most community hospitals to actually getting the blood Uh, even if you're not crossing and typing? I think there's a difference in almost how your approach or your mindset to these kids. The kids who present in compensated shock, we know that you know, less than 10% of these kids ever actually need to be transfused, and they respond very well with improved Mm -hmm. perfusion with small boluses of crystalloid. The child who presents in severe shock, who's actively bleeding in front of you, you know they need blood. You may not have that blood readily available, so you may have to supplement them with small boluses of crystalloid, but you're getting blood much faster, you're acting much more quickly, and you're trying to get blood into them as soon as you have it available. Got it. Well said. Okay. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> and I would add to that that shock in pediatric trauma patient may not be just hypovolemic, and a lot of those patients would require some IV fluid resuscitation that may help relieve their shock. We talked a little bit about the targets of perfusion already, which talked about vital signs, particularly heart rate, mentation, urine output, cutaneous perfusion, which is the skin temperature, color, capillary refill. We follow those closely in the emergency department in addition to lactate and base deficit. So those are really the targets of perfusion that we use. And then the concept of permissive hypotension in pediatrics. No. <laughs> no, <laughs> not so far. So the yeah, evidence... I guess that- any hypotension is like <laughs> pre-arrest badness. So. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. For all of those reasons that have been described, the evidence and uptake for the practice of permissive hypotension in pediatric trauma is lacking and so far discouraged, but may need to be nuanced to the age of the patient, the suspected reason for shock, and whether or not a traumatic brain injury is present. For the vast majority of blunt pediatric trauma, which we see, it's actually traumatic brain injury rather than hemorrhagic shock that is the leading cause of death and disability. And we have lots of evidence demonstrating that protecting against secondary brain injury through proper management of hypoxia and hypotension early in resuscitation is still unfortunately not done well enough for pediatric trauma care. So recommendations to keep hypotensive or even bare minimum normotensive may be appropriate for the adolescent who has hemorrhage without TBI but is not accepted care for young children or anybody with a traumatic brain injury. Right. Well, maybe they should be replacing permissive hypotension with permissive tachycardia Mm, in kids. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someone needs to do a study on that. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Okay, so those are some of the signs and symptoms of shock that we need to look out for in kids. What are some of the common pitfalls in assessing kids with shock? I think the most important pitfall is really just failing to recognize and address shock in its early stage when kids are compensated and not then being able to avoid that downward spiral. A big pitfall would be assuming tachycardia is secondary to pain or fear and not appreciating its role in pediatric hypovolemic shock. Another pitfall would be assuming hypovolemic or hemorrhagic shock and not properly assessing for the other types of shock in trauma, whether it's obstructive from a tension pneumothorax or distributive from spinal shock. Absolutely. We always got to keep those rare birds in the back of our minds. So that's all we're going to talk about when it comes to the primary survey. Let's move on to the secondary survey. And first in our head-to-toe exam is head injury. So we covered pediatric head injury in one of our very first EM cases episode, episode three. But I think it's important to go over some of the pearls and pitfalls of severe head trauma in the context of the polytraumatized child. And what I mean by severe head trauma is a GCS of eight or less or that they only respond to pain or worse on your AVPU scale. We mentioned at the top of the podcast that kids have a higher incidence of head trauma than adults. In fact, head injury is responsible for about 80% of all trauma deaths in kids. We also touched on the fact that kids have thinner skulls, so more skull fractures, more diffuse axonal injury, and cerebral edema. But Dr. Benno, before we get into the exact actions to take when we care for these kids, what's the main goal of treatment in the head injured child? You know, when I think of polytrauma patients, I separate kids who have polytrauma and kids who have polytrauma with a severe TBI. And there is a different approach to these kids. The main goal of treatment after head injury is to prevent secondary brain injury and minimize increased intracranial pressure. So we really want to optimize cerebral perfusion pressure by ensuring an adequate blood pressure, mean arterial pressure, and minimizing increases in ICP. I've mentioned this before and is really worth mentioning again that the two factors that contribute to secondary brain injury most commonly are hypoxia and hypotension. And so it's very, very important that those two factors are addressed well in early pediatric trauma care. I would also like to add that hypoglycemia and hypothermia can also be fairly harmful to the patient with a TBI, especially in the younger kids where they lose a lot of heat and they get a lot of cold fluids, cold blood. So make sure you you watch their temperature, keep the normothermic, and watch their sugar. As Sarah Reed once told me, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the D, E, F, G is don't ever forget the glucose. So <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. So really there's there's four things for the kid with traumatic brain injury that we really need to pay attention to. One is we need to avoid hypotension at every cost. We need to avoid hypoxia. The third one is we need to avoid hypoglycemia. And lastly, we need to avoid hypothermia. Now let's talk about how we're actually going to accomplish all those things. So we've talked about those four key things that we need to avoid in the child with a traumatic brain injury. Let's talk specifically about the actions we need to take in the resuscitation room to minimize increased ICP besides maintaining adequate oxygenation and volume resuscitation and making sure their sugar is okay. With that kid that comes in and you suspect that their brain is just swelling and you really need to act quickly, what do you actually do? 
Yeah. So some of the other things you can consider doing include raising the head of the bed to 30 degrees or putting the patient in reverse Trendelenburg to promote venous drainage. You can take the collar off. Collars can often increase ICP as well um, and just use alternative ways to stabilize, whether it's manual okay. inline or, or Yeah, Hopefully we never put a collar on in the first place. Well, yeah, they do come in with collars still. Pain and sedation, ensure that you're addressing those uh, to reduce intracranial hypertension. Specific agent outcome data is really not available for us in pediatrics, but some choices include fentanyl at 1 to 2 mics per kilo or midazolam 0.1 milligrams per kilo if your blood pressure allows. And it's really important that even post-intubation that proper care towards sedation and analgesia is addressed and for any procedures that need to be done for that patient. Seizures should be aggressively treated with benzodiazepines, Ativan or midazolam, 0.1 milligram per kilo, and then a longer-acting anti-epileptic drug like phenytoin or phosphenytoin or phenobarbital in young infants. If the child has a severe traumatic brain injury and has lost autoregulation or is now intubated, then it's very important that normocapnia, so an end-tidal CO2 target of 35 to 40, is maintained. While low or low-moderate CO2 levels will actually reduce ICP, this will also contribute to cerebral ischemia and neurological morbidity. So the goal is normocapnia unless a child is herniating in front of you, at which point hyperventilation to achieve hypocapnia is effective and necessary. Okay, so yeah, unless they're actually coning in front of you, you want to maintain that normocapnia. If they are coning, then you're going for a CO2 of maybe 30. Or you can shoot for a CO2 of 30. I think there's no evidence that tells us how low that CO2 should be when the patient's dying in front of you. One of the other techniques I've learned and have done is essentially hyperventilating to pupillary response if you have a child who is dilating in front of you. Oh, great. That's a great pearl. That's, yeah. that's a lot easier than targeting a, a CO2. Using hyperosmolar agents here is appropriate. The two that we have available to us are hypertonic saline, 3%, and mannitol. So you can use either. Both have been studied somewhat in pediatrics. Mannitol has a long track record, but hypertonic has a little bit more evidence to it. Uh, hypertonic saline is also readily available and can be immediately given. So usually we're giving it in bolus doses of 3 to 4 mils per kilo several times over, and then it's started as an infusion in the ICU. Manitol can also be given 0.25 to 1 gram per kilo, but it takes some time to draw up and it takes some time to be effective. Again, make sure that patient's adequately sedated, the seizures are controlled, and, uh, and you're using sedatives as, as you need to. And then definitive care is neurosurgical intervention for either hematoma evacuation or decompressive craniectomy. The second priority is to protect the airway. And airway protection with RSI, if logistics allow, while you maintain cervical spine immobilization, should be done. But don't let the CO2 rise in the process of obtaining the airway. Absolutely. And you might want to throw some fentanyl in there before you intubate, right? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> like we were talking about before. All right. So that's sort of severe traumatic brain injury and some of the things you can do to lower the ICP, some of the things you can do when a patient's herniating in front of you and the four big things that you want to avoid, hypotension, hypoxia, hypoglycemia, and hypothermia. Let's move on to the C-spine. First, I just want to ask you a little bit about log rolling trauma patients. Now, traditionally, we log rolled every trauma patient to check for vertebral tenderness, any obvious signs of trauma, and to do a rectal exam. But let's say we've got a patient with an unstable pelvic fracture that we haven't diagnosed yet. 
I can't imagine that log rolling them would be good for hemorrhage control or pain control for that manner. And when it comes to the rectal exam, I understand that there's evidence that it's really, really low yield in the trauma patient. In fact, there was a study out of Pediatric Emergency Care in 2007 and another one out of Emergency Medicine Journal in 2014 that suggested that the digital rectal exam has an extremely low yield, and those papers both question whether a log roll is essential at all in blunt trauma. There's also this argument that if you need to do a DRE for whatever reason, you can do it while the patient's lying supine. What's your take on whether or not we should be log rolling every pediatric polytrauma patient? I think that log railing is still an important part of the trauma survey. I think it's the opportunity to get the patient off the board. I think it has to be done appropriately so the patient is stabilized and there's adequate analgesia and circulation control done prior to actually moving them and taking a look. I think it's important for exposure. The DRE is not essential. And we have literally taken the DRE out of pediatric trauma surveys with the exception of if you are looking for a spinal cord issue. It's certainly not helpful for gross blood, for bowel injury. So we rarely do DREs on our pediatric trauma patients anymore. So I would just like to add to what Dr. Bino was saying that I think there's a difference between the awake boarded patient versus the intubated boarded patient. And in awake boarded patient, I think examining their back is probably important. Uh, log rolling may, may not be always the way to go. And doing a DRE in such patient is often not necessarily unless you're worried about a spinal cord injury. In an intubated patient, though, I think doing a log roll in a controlled fashion is helpful to look at their back and get them off their ward as soon as possible. So let's move on to clearing the pediatric C-spine. Now, unfortunately, the Canadian C-spine rules were only validated in adults, and the Nexus rule only had about 2% of their study population that was under the age of 8. So we can't really use the Canadian C-spine rules or Nexus for kids. Dr. Benno, in general, how do you actually clear a pediatric C-spine? Yeah, this topic is a true pain in the neck and challenging, particularly for nonverbal kids and kids with polytrauma. So clearing pediatric C-spines in trauma is a very challenging issue for a number of reasons, including their different anatomy, their inability to assess, their higher likelihood of having an unreliable exam, and the fact that we have a lot of concern over radiating kids that we don't need to. So we're not as comfortable just simply pan-CTing every child that we have to ensure that we don't miss a bony fracture. Even though the incidence of cervical spine injury is far lower in the pediatric population, less than 2%, any child involved in a polytrauma with the potential for a C-spine injury should be treated as if the injury exists until proven otherwise. And we also have to stratify cervical spine clearance into age groups based on the different evidence, the different studies that we have, and different algorithms that have been proposed. So there are different ways to do this based upon whether you're under three, whether you're between three and eight years of age, and then when you're over eight. These algorithms include the Trauma Association of Canada cervical spine clearance, which has two pathways, a pathway for clearing the child with a reliable exam and a pathway for clearing a child with an unreliable exam. Okay, we'll have all the details of that particular protocol on the website, but maybe you could just go through it briefly for us here. 
Sure. So in a child who has a reliable exam, if they are actually above the age of eight, then Nexus performed really well in this age group. And we add the combination of rotation of the head, flexion and rotation of the head to 45 degrees, like in the Canadian C-spine rules, and that has a very good negative predictive value for cervical spine injuries. So that's what we use clinically to clear children. Okay, so in over eight, you can actually use a combination of nexus and C-spine like we do in adults. Great. Absolutely. Okay. And I would say you can use that actually between three and eight as well. So there isn't evidence showing that there's a lot of kids that this has worked for, and there were some that were missed using nexus alone. But in addition, using the flexion extension and the rotation in a child who doesn't have a significant risk factor, such as diving or motor vehicle collision, and who doesn't have predisposing conditions like Down syndrome or other conditions where they're more likely to have cervical spine instability or have a higher likelihood of fracturing, mm -hmm. those kids can fairly reliably be cleared as well. Kids will often, if they have a cervical spine injury, they will show you if their mentation is normal, will actually not want to move their neck and give you clinical clues that there's something going on. Okay, so that's sort of the three and over. What about the three and under? Well, that group's a little bit trickier. And so there's a large variability in how people clear C-spines here. So if the mechanism is really not risky, so for example, if it's a kid who tumbled down a flight of stairs, we actually have a lot of data showing that those kids are rarely ever injured. And they're crying and they're moving their neck and the collar doesn't fit and they're thrashing about. Most of us will just take the collar off and clear it like that in the emergency department. For the kid who is in a more significant mechanism where you have a higher concern for cervical spine injury, there is a way prediction rule using four independent factors that can be used to try and predict whether that kid has a uh, cervical spine injury. Okay, so we got four clinical predictors in kids under three that have a worrisome mechanism. What, what are the four clinical predictors? The four clinical predictors are having a GCS score of less than 14. That gives you three points. Having a GCS score of the eye specifically of one, which is two points. Being involved in a motor vehicle collision, which is two points. And age being 25 to 36 months, which is one point. So in their analysis, patients who had a documented score of less than two were eligible for C-spine clearance uh, without imaging. And with a net score of 0 or 1, they had a negative predictive value of 99.9%. Oh, great. So those are the kids who aren't that sick. For the kids who are really sick, my practice is I don't worry about clearing the C-spine. I just keep them immobilized and transfer them out to the trauma center and sort of let them deal with it. Yeah, that would be the advice we would give, absolutely. So the diagnosis at a community hospital or at a hospital that's not definitively going to be looking after these kids is not a priority. But keeping them immobilized so that they can be imaged according to whatever protocols we use is the way to go. Okay, great. So those are some great pearls in there. We're going to have those scores available on the website for people to review. So that's the C-spine I just wanted to ask for those patients who we do keep in our departments who aren't being transferred out, which of those patients might need a C-spine CT? Now, obviously, we want to avoid CTs when we can because of radiation issues. But what are the indications for a CT of the C-spine in kids? All right. So CT imaging of the neck is not routine and it's not really warranted in most pediatric trauma patients. As, as Dr. Bino was saying, it's probably best reserved in patients who are transferred to a pediatric trauma center. But in a patient who really can't be cleared clinically, an indication for a CT of C-spine would be inadequate plain films, 
suspicious findings on a plain film, a fractures or displacement seen in a plain film, or if the provider has a high clinical suspicion of C-spine injury. Okay, so basically, if for whatever reason your C-spine films aren't adequate enough, or you see something suspicious on a on a regular plain film, or you just have that really high suspicion, I mean that would be that would be true in in the adult population as well. You know, in adults, if we have a really high suspicion for a C-spine injury, we'll skip plain films and go straight to CT. If we have a low clinical suspicion, we'll try and use the C-spine and or nexus rules to clear them. If they fail those, then we'll send them for a C-spine x-ray. And if we then examine them and they still have a low clinical suspicion, then that's usually enough to clear them. All right. So just to add to that, for pediatric polytrauma, it's important to know that we actually don't standardly screen with CT necks. We still selectively screen with that. And particularly under age eight, their injuries are so focused and concentrated in the upper cervical spine. They don't have multifocal injuries generally, unlike adolescents and adults where you would have to actually CT the entire neck. If a child is sick enough that they need a head CT, most pediatric trauma, if not all pediatric trauma centers, will have a protocol where they actually include down to C3 in their imaging protocols to ensure that they capture where the vast majority of serious cervical spine injuries are going to occur in young children. Otherwise, kids, we still start with radiography and then move to CT if we need to after that based on the factors that Dr. Al-Naji was talking about. Great. Okay, let's move down from the C-spine to the chest. In kids, as we were saying, thoracic injury is way less common than in adults, less than 5% of polytrauma patients, in fact, mostly because their chest is more compliant and they can absorb more of the forces better than an adult can. And the most common chest injury, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is pulmonary contusion. Now, the important thing to remember is that if you see an obvious external chest injury, this is a big red flag for other serious injuries because it means that the trauma involves huge forces. Dr. Benno, what are some of the key pearls and pitfalls in assessing kids for chest injuries? I think exactly how you just described it is perfect. I think the major pitfall is assuming no chest trauma if there are no external signs. We don't often see flail chest, sucking chest wounds. It's not our bread and butter. But as you said, significant thoracic injury can still be there without bruising, tenderness, crepitations, etc. And even not even being seen on external clinical exam, we sometimes don't see it on initial radiography. Pulmonary contusions can show up days later. Some of the pearls for chest trauma. I think I've said it before. Again, I think deflating the stomach is very important to relieve abdominal distension that impairs breathing in kids, particularly relevant for young babies. We've all seen a lot of young children who look in extremis and have significant relief in their excursion and respiratory status once their stomach was deflated. I think another pearl that I find is that most pediatric trauma victims are healthy kids, and healthy kids should have normal oxygen levels. So a less than perfect O2 sat is a red flag for me. And tachypnea, work of breathing, reduced air entry, abnormal breath sounds, which is sometimes difficult to appreciate in a trauma setting, are often subtle and easy to miss. 
While paradoxical or abdominal breathing is easy to spot and is a classic pediatric sign for advanced respiratory distress secondary to illness or injury, we do use POCUS as well in pediatric trauma for assessing the presence of a pneumothorax or effusion in the thoracic cavity in children. So that, I think, is a helpful pearl, actually, and has made a difference. So do you have any tips or tricks about chest tube placement in pediatric trauma? Truly, we don't actually place chest tubes that often because of how uncommon thoracic trauma requiring thoracostomy in kids is. And as well, small and occult pneumothoraces are often managed conservatively without chest tubes, even if they're ventilated, unless the child's condition deteriorates or air transport is planned. But there are a couple of tips. One consideration for kids is thinking of the pediatric patient in terms of their thoracoabdominal unit as opposed to chest and abdominal trauma independently. And again, that's really just because their diaphragms are so mobile and they're so prone to complications if there is increased abdominal pressure. So patient positioning in an upright position and deflating the stomach prior to chest tube placement are important. A second consideration is actually using a pigtail catheter in lieu of a large caliber chest tube for treatment of pneumo and possibly hemonumothoraces. All right. So even in the trauma patient, we're talking yeah, this is using rel- a pigtail. Right. This is relatively new because we have always yeah. used you know regular chest tubes for trauma patients. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of interest now knowing that pigtails have been associated with reduced periods of needing a drain in situ reduced procedure to discharge times and total duration of illness. They do have higher rates of kinking, but they have been shown to be useful for both pneumo and hemothorax. And if there is a pneumothorax easily visible on initial chest X-ray or a small volume hemothorax, then you know that could be managed with a small caliber pigtail catheter. Great. We talked a little bit about CT scans for the C-spine. What about for the chest? When would you consider doing a CT of the chest in a pediatric polytrauma? I think that the same thing applies to uh, CT of the chest. As we try and avoid doing CTs that are not necessary in any pediatric patient. So when considering a thoracic trauma in pediatrics, a plain chest x-ray remains a good tool in screening such patients. Unless you have clinical evidence to suggest that there is something more in there, like a, a hemothorax or a pneumothorax or a lung contusion that's significant enough in addition to a cardiovascular pathology related to trauma, a CT scan is probably not helpful. And recently, with the addition of using point-of-care ultrasound to screen for pneumothoraces, hemothoraces, uh, we're doing way less CT imaging of the chest as we use POCUS as a screening tool. Awesome. I'm loving this. Like You could actually take care of a pediatric polytrauma patient really well without doing any CTs. Except we haven't gotten to the abdomen yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I forgot about that. Well, that segues nicely into the abdomen. So uh, I guess we'll get into whether an ultrasound is good enough to assess for injuries in abdominal trauma in kids. But before we talk about the imaging of the abdomen, I think this is probably a good spot to talk about blood tests, which we haven't really talked about yet. What blood tests should we be ordering in the pediatric polytrauma patient? I guess there's the blood tests that we just want to know, the obvious things like if their hemoglobin is low and we want an INRPTT just to make sure that they don't have any bleeding disorder that would elevate those. And then in particular, besides those baseline blood tests, what are some of the blood tests that are most useful for prognosis and trending over time? So as you said, the trauma panel, including CBC, hematocrit, 
type and screen, uh, cross-matching blood, INR, PTT, fibrinogen, uh, blood gas, liver enzymes, lipase amylase, and a female patient, childbearing age, a beta HCG are really important to do as a baseline. And there, there are some good studies in pediatric looking at what really can predict an intra-abdominal injury. For example, using liver enzymes has been shown to be helpful. In one study, it showed that uh, an AST of over 200 or an ALT over 125 was actually highly predictive of an intra-abdominal injury in blunt trauma in pediatrics. And this usually would warrant an abdominal CT in such patients. Yeah, that's, that's certainly very different than adults because half the adults we see are drinkers and their ASTs and ALTs are all over the place. So interesting. Okay, so... That's a great pearl. So elevated transaminases have been shown to be pretty specific for the presence of an intra-abdominal injury in the setting of blunt trauma in kids. What about the sensitivity? Are they are they any good at ruling out? Unfortunately, they're not a good rule-out test. So uh, normal transaminases do not exclude an intra-abdominal injury in pediatrics. Okay. So that's transaminases. And what about for predicting prognosis? You know, in adults, uh, we use lactate, we use base deficit. Is it similar for kids? Yeah, one of the new predictive scores in pediatrics is the big score, which is a combination of base deficit, INR, and GCS. The big score. The big score, okay. yeah. And it's... Uh, base it's deficit, INR. And GCS. And GCS, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually been compared to other pediatric trauma scores like the pediatric trauma score, injury severity score, and so forth, and found to be much more predictive or mortality than these other scores. Mm. Oh, great. So let's just go through that. So the B is for base deficit. So what what are the numbers they're talking about? So the way you calculate the score is base deficit plus 2.5 times the INR plus 15 minus the GCS. All right. Say that again for me. The base deficit plus 2.5 times the INR plus 15 minus the GCS. And what we've seen in the literature that we have right now is that a big score of around 16 is kind of the cutoff for survivability that we're seeing. We're seeing a very, the score has been used retrospectively. In combat military data, it was then also done in Germany, and it's actually been done by one of the investigators, Adrian Davis at SickKids, who showed that it had an excellent AUC for mortality, and that under 16, most patients survived, and over 16, there was quite a significant amount of mortality. And I'd also add to that that Adrian Davis from SickKids is looking at validating this in a multicenter trial, so um, look forward to that study. Great. Okay. So the big score is not 100% ready for prime time yet, but it can certainly help guide us for prognosis. And what about in terms of trending over time to assess ongoing bleeding? There's hemoglobin, there's hematocrit, there's lactate, there's base deficit. What do you tend to use clinically in terms of trending over time of whether there's ongoing serious bleeding? I think hemoglobin or hematocrit are probably the best measures to trend over time to indicate the severity of bleeding. I'm not aware of any good studies looking at trending of lactate or base deficit in pediatrics. Yeah, and I would just add in combination with serial abdominal exams and observation of perfusion. Abdo exam and fast serially also is very helpful. Okay, so the way these kids, the way you observe these kids over time, the good old palpation, abdominal exam, uh, using POCUS, and you'll use a combination of the hemoglobin, hematocrit, 
you'll put it all together and decide whether things are getting worse or whether the patient stabilized. Okay. Now, it's my general understanding that very few kids actually end up going to the OR for intra-abdominal injuries. Dr. Benno, can you just go over for us with abdominal injuries, what can we generally expect besides the obvious, most of them don't end up going to the OR? Yeah, intra-abdominal injuries in pediatric trauma are mainly conservatively managed, non-operatively. And that's because most of the injuries are solid organ injuries. So liver and spleen injuries make up the bulk of solid organ injuries, then kidney. Certainly other injuries, including intestinal hollow viscous, pancreatic, there's some controversy around that. Those kids may need surgical intervention, but the most, the vast majority of kids actually present with solid organ injuries. At the top of the podcast, we had outlined some of the differences between kids and adults when it comes to abdominal injuries. What else do we need to know about abdominal trauma in kids in general? Yeah, I think that's very important. I think the first thing is around mechanism, actually. And there are certain mechanisms that correlate with specific injuries in children. So seatbelt signs, syndromes, handlebar injuries, abuse, etc., are all very highly correlated with certain abdominal injuries. And anatomically, kids are just more susceptible to serious intra-abdominal injury, given all of the reasons we've discussed before. We also have to ensure that kids who present with obvious traumatic injuries are considered as having an intra-abdominal injury until proven otherwise, especially if they're hemodynamically unstable, because this really is a very, very common injury for kids. The main difference between adults and peds is that the majority of children with hemoperitoneum do not require surgical intervention, and the overwhelming majority of solid organ injuries are treated conservatively with less than 5% needing operative management. Now, this may be different depending upon which center a child goes to. So there's quite a lot of evidence actually demonstrating that kids who go to adult trauma centers were much more likely to have their spleen removed than if they come to a pediatric trauma center. The other important point about kids is that the abdominal exam in a young child can fool you. And I have seen several kids who are comfortable, cooperative, with non-tender abdomens, only to find a grossly positive fast and or a high-grade solid organ injury on CT. And so we do know that about 20 to 30% of children with intra-abdominal injury will have a normal abdominal exam. And this is very inconvenient for us when trying to decide who we need to scan. So that's some of the things we need to know when approaching kids in general with abdominal trauma. Let's talk about imaging with abdominal trauma. You know, in adults, we have a pretty good algorithm when it comes to FAST with patients who have a positive FAST go straight to the OR. And if they have a negative FAST, then they can go to the scanner. How is the algorithm different in kids? What do we need to know about imaging the abdomen in abdominal trauma for kids? Why don't we start with what is the role of POCUS? In a patient who is suspecting an intra-abdominal injury and the patient has a positive FAST but otherwise stable, this patient would warrant a CAT scan of the abdomen. In an unstable patient with a positive FAST, most of these patients would warrant a good discussion with the surgeons about going to the OR directly. But as Dr. Bino was saying earlier, that a lot of those patients with an intra-abdominal injury tend to um, stabilize with some hemodynamic resuscitation with some blood without the need to go to the OR. But if there is active bleeding necessitating um, continuous blood transfusions, then these patients go directly to the OR as the conservative management is not going to be successful. Okay, so just to review there, FAST is quite specific. So if you get a positive FAST, 
and the patient is totally stable, they can go to the CT scanner to try and elucidate exactly what injuries they have. Mm -hmm. If their FAST is positive and they're very unstable, then call your surgeon. Then there's three possibilities. One is they're just so unstable that they need to go directly to the OR, which is very rare. The second is they're pretty unstable. You're giving them blood products, but you're transfusing them and transfusing them and transfusing them, and still they're unstable. Those patients go to the OR. And then there's the group where they're initially unstable, you transfuse them, and then they become stable, and most of those patients don't go to the OR. That is correct. Yeah, that's correct. And I would add to that also about the patient with a negative FAST. So if you have a high clinical suspicion of abdominal injury, for example, if you have a seatbelt sign, or if you have high uh, liver enzymes, or if you have a clear hematuria, then even, even in the context of a negative FAST, those patients would also warrant a CAT scan of the abdomen. Okay, so the sensitivity is poor of a POCUS in pediatric blunt trauma. So if you have a high pretest probability, then those patients need a CAT scan as well. Okay, got it. I would just add one thing is that while the FAST probably itself doesn't have a huge role in pediatric trauma management, the extended part of the FAST, so using POCUS for thoracic issues like looking for pneumothorax and effusion, actually is highly sensitive and we have found to be quite useful. And the FAST in and of itself looking for abdominal fluid uh, may not have the traditional role that it was initially designed to do, but as it finds its home in pediatric trauma, it's probably going to be incorporated into a low-risk rule. So this is for the kids who you don't want to CT, who you combine with your physical exam and with your other screening parameters like your transaminases, like your, you know, your analysis and so forth. With serial exams and serial fast exams, these kids probably may not need CT scans and we may be able to reduce the number of scans that we're doing in those children, in low-risk kids. So those are for the low-risk patients and what we can expect in the near future What about the indications for actually getting a CT scan? I know the PCARN group had a study out of academic emergency medicine that looked at a prediction instrument to guide us for who needs a CT scan for intra-abdominal blunt torso trauma. What are the indications for a CT scan? How how do we go about deciding that one? Yeah, I think there's two ways of looking at this. We can identify the kids who are high risk and absolutely need an abdominal CT scan. That's how the NICE guidelines in the UK have done it. So things like a history that suggests severe intra-abdominal injury, a physical exam that's concerning uh, whether it's tenderness, guarding, rebound, presence of a seatbelt sign or other abdominal bruising. If the transaminases are elevated with AST greater than 200 or an ALT greater than 125, if the hemoglobin or hematocrit are dropping, or if there's gross hematuria or positive fast. So you could argue that those kids, you know, for sure need to go for an abdominal CT scan. The other way of looking at it is trying to predict the low-risk kids through a clinical decision rule, which is what PCARN did for the kids who really don't need that. You know, they did that multi-center study where they looked over 12,000 children, used a seven-point decision rule with the variables of no evidence of abdominal wall trauma or seatbelt sign, GCS greater than 13 without any abdominal tenderness, no evidence of thoracic wall trauma, no complaints of abdominal pain, no decreased breath sounds, and no history of vomiting. They found that 
with no uh, variables, the rule had a 99.9% negative predictive value. So essentially means that if a child with blunt torso trauma has none of the above factors, then they are highly unlikely to have a clinically significant intra-abdominal injury that requires acute intervention. And that's before getting labs or ultrasound. They were very careful to say that this rule should not be used such that if a child has one of these variables, then they should then get an abdominal CT because that would likely increase mm-hmm. the rates of abdominal CT Yeah, imaging. that's what I worry. I mean, uh-huh. One of those variables is that they have abdominal pain. I mean, exactly. every kid in our department has abdominal pain pretty exactly. much. Exactly. <laughs> and so then they did actually compare their rule, the test characteristics of the clinical decision rule compared to clinical suspicion, which they recently published and found actually, interestingly, that the clinical prediction rule had significantly higher sensitivity for identifying intra-abdominal injury undergoing acute intervention, but a lower specificity. And the higher specificity of clinical suspicion, although didn't translate into clinical practice, as clinicians frequently obtain scans anyway in patients that they consider to be at very low risk. So this last paper, I'm not entirely sure, is helpful in predicting whether our suspicion or the clinical decision rule is better or worse. more sensitive than clinician judgment, but also less specific. And it may have a role in community hospitals where people are not as comfortable with traumatically injured children. Also, the rule itself may need to be finessed, adding in other parameters like POCUS or lab values to try and improve the rule. Yeah, so I think the value in the PCARN rule is that if a child presents with polytrauma, who's been in a significant mechanism that scares the clinician, but doesn't have any of the variables in the rule, that child can safely not have an abdominal CT scan. Okay, because I guess a lot of clinicians who see kids that are in motor vehicle crashes that are more than a fender bender will usually CT those kids? Yeah, there are a lot of children who are being scanned based upon mechanism alone. And I think it's valuable then to know that if they don't have any of the variables, their risk is very, very low. Okay. And conversely, we got to be careful. The big pitfall, I guess, is that if they do have any of those variables, that doesn't mean that they have to have a CT scan. Absolutely. So the rule is not meant to tell you which child to CT. It's meant to tell you which child not to CT. Beautiful. All right. And Dr. Al-Naji, which kids need imaging of the pelvis prior to transfer to a trauma center? You know, some of these kids will have, have a broken pelvis. Let's talk about kids who don't need a pelvic x-ray. So as we mentioned earlier, pelvic fractures are not as common in pediatric compared to adults. So a pelvic x-ray can actually be emitted in children with a low risk uh, of fractures and a normal GCS and stable hemodynamics. They have none of the following, any abdominal injury, any abnormality in the pelvic exam, and any associated femur fracture or hematuria. Okay, so just to review there, a pelvic x-ray is not required if all of the following conditions are fulfilled. One, that they have a normal GCS. Two, that they have normal hemodynamic status. Three, that there's no external signs of abdominal trauma. Four, that there's no abnormalities on pelvic exam. Five, there's no associated femur fracture. And six, there's no hematuria. So if all those are fulfilled, you don't need to do a pelvic x-ray. That's correct. Okay, so we've talked about head, neck, chest, abdominal, pelvic trauma. Let's talk about bleeding. Now, when it comes to stopping bleeding, 
some newer strategies that have been used in adults with some success, uh, like tranexamic acid. You know, the CRASH-2 trial, which is now famous, showed the benefit of tranexamic acid given early. There's also TEG or Rotem, which I personally know very little about, but seems to be discussed extensively in the adult trauma circles. Dr. Benno, can you briefly review the role of these three things, tranexamic acid, TEG, and Rotem, in pediatric trauma? Sure. These aspects of hemostatic resuscitation have received so much attention in adult trauma, and subsequently this has spurred a lot of interest in their application to pediatric trauma as well. So I'll start with TXA. So TXA is thought to reduce mortality in trauma possibly through two mechanisms. The first is its antifibrinolytic property, such that rather than forming clots, it prevents clots from breaking down. And secondly, it's also thought to possibly mitigate the systemic inflammatory response to massive hemorrhage. So while TXA after CRASH-2 is now routinely used in adult bleeding trauma, there's very little currently in the literature about TXA use in pediatric trauma. But there is a lot of activity happening behind the scene to work towards assessing its role in a prospective manner. After CRASH-2, in recognition of the reduction in mortality effect of TXA, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health in the UK translated that evidence and issued a recommendation and policy statement on a pragmatic dosing schedule for injured kids, with adolescents receiving the same dose as done in the trial, so a gram bolus over 10 minutes within three hours of injury, followed by a second one gram infusion over eight hours. And for children less than 12, the dose they put forth was 15 milligrams per kilo as a bolus, followed by an infusion of two milligrams per kilo per hour for eight hours or until the bleeding stops. With colleagues from St. Mike's and Sunnybrook, we actually published a commentary describing the current use of tranexamic acid in children and the rationale for its potential use in bleeding pediatric trauma patients, emphasizing that it has a long and clear track record of safety and efficacy in many pediatric bleeding conditions. But we stress that further research uh, was needed, particularly in young children, where it's less clear if they would actually benefit from tranexamic acid. The only study that exists right now is PEDTRAX, which is an observational study using military trauma database to review tranexamic acid use in patients 18 years of age or younger, of which only 9% of the 766 pediatric trauma patients received TXA in that study. And it showed that TXA use was independently associated with decreased mortality among all patients with an odds ratio of 0.3 and showed similar trends for subgroups of severely injured and transfused patients. And there was no significant difference in thromboembolic complications or other cardiovascular events. Their propensity analysis actually confirmed the survival advantage and suggested, interestingly, that significant improvements in discharge neurologic status as well as decreased ventilator dependence were significant in the TXA group. Now, the last study that exists is a recent study from the PCARN group describing TXA use in U.S. children's hospitals. And what they showed was that while it's administered routinely for a number of bleeding conditions, its use in pediatric trauma was minimal. So there's a lot more to come on TXA in pediatric trauma. It's not standard of care. It is definitely now used, though, particularly in adolescents who are bleeding or at risk for bleeding, and occasionally in younger children who require transfusion. And many pediatric centers have already incorporated it into their massive transfusion programs. Hmm. Okay. So while we don't have great evidence yet, it's looking like we may be following the adult practice of giving TXA. Now, when you said that in those kids who require transfusions, all the studies in the adult literature show that it's only useful in terms of decreasing mortality if we give it early, like in the first three hours. So is that what is recommended in pediatrics as well? 
Yeah, well, this is where it's different because we don't actually have the data to guide us on this. So I think for kids that are younger than 12, those kids who have that very robust hemodynamic system where they don't often need to be transfused, in those kids, that's where we really need to study it because we don't want to be introducing a medication that they don't need and could be potentially unlikely, but could be potentially harmful. So in those kids, as opposed to using tranexamic acid for at-risk, people have been a little bit more conservative with that and only incorporated it into their MTPs when it's obvious that the kid needs blood. All right, so that's tranexamic acid. What about TAG or Rotem? Sure. So TAG and Rotem are viscoelastic hemostatic assays, and in some cases they're bedside point-of-care tests that assess in real time the entire coagulation process, including fibrin formation, clot rate, strength, stability, lysis, etc. And they have the advantage of showing the total clotting capacity of someone's blood, which is something we haven't had before. Generally re- provide a rapid, useful result that can guide clinicians toward more goal-directed transfusion strategy. In children, there is a growing body of literature and experience with TEG primarily that is demonstrating its utility in delivering real-time actionable data and giving us actually, importantly, more information regarding the prevalence of trauma-induced coagulopathy and hyperfibrinolysis in kids. I think these tests will become mainstream in pediatric trauma care, especially in high-volume trauma centers. There are a number of reasons suggesting pediatric trauma coagulopathy may be more heterogeneous and less likely amenable to a one-size-fits-all resuscitative strategy, as in the use of massive transfusion protocols. So these tests really hold a lot of promise for that. Hmm. Okay, cool. So in terms of the future of pediatric trauma care, keep your ears and eyes open for some studies on tranexamic acid, TEG, and Rotem, because this looks like it'll probably eventually become sort of the standard of care, assuming that those studies pan out. Let's move on to our final topic, which is preparation for transport to a trauma center. Now, some experts have recommended the pediatric trauma score to help predict which patients should be transported to a trauma center. And we'll have those details of the score on the website, show notes. What is the pediatric trauma score? And is it useful, in your opinion, in trying to figure out which patients should be transported? The pediatric trauma score is one of several triage scores that have been developed to try and predict mortality and also to try and predict which children need to be transported to a pediatric trauma center. The unique feature of the pediatric trauma score was that it took into account the inherent vulnerabilities of a child who's been traumatically injured, so their weight, their airway status, and then the other variables included their systolic blood pressure, level of consciousness, the presence of a long bone fracture, and cutaneous markings. Each variable is weighted, and then basically the numbers are added up, and a child who meets the score of you know less than eight should be transported. And I think it probably is very helpful in the community because these are all variables that somebody can easily identify on clinical exam as a child who is you know sick enough that needs to be seen in a comprehensive pediatric trauma care facility. Great. Okay, so pediatric score is pretty useful. For people who don't do a lot of trauma, which includes me, (laughs) so I think I'll use this score. Let's talk a little bit about which patients require the scoop and run approach. So they arrive at your community hospital and you just do a quick primary survey and get them out of there. 
Could you just go through for us which are the kind of kids that we should be doing that for rather than keeping and doing the secondary survey and looking further into their injuries? So if you have a child who uh, has any hemodynamic instability, if a child has severe traumatic brain injury with a GCS of 8 or less, these patients weren't a quick scoop and run after stabilization of their ABCs. All right, so the scoop and run are for the patients with hemodynamic instability or a GCS of less than 8. You should run through your CABC, as Dr. Benner outlined for us at the top of the podcast, primary survey, and then just get them the heck out of there. All right. Now, what about the patients who you're not going to scoop and run? You're going to do some investigations, but you still think they need transport to a trauma center, maybe based on your pediatric trauma score. Which imaging tests are required before you transport that trauma patient? A chest x-ray is often warranted in such patients if you have any suspicion of any chest trauma. As we discussed earlier in regards to C-spine x-rays, they're easy to be done in a community setting. So if you have any concern about a C-spine injury, then go ahead and do those. A pelvic x-ray is warranted if there's any indication to it also. But CT imaging is better not done in a community setting unless it's discussed with a trauma team leader. So discuss that with your, with your receiving trauma center, and this should never delay a transport of a patient with a trauma. Well, I would agree. I think that CT imaging, for a number of reasons, one, it shouldn't delay transport, and then two, we certainly don't want to be re-radiating children at a trauma center if the scans don't come mm-hmm. or if the quality is insufficient. So if you're in a community center where there's a nearby trauma center for a kid that's really unstable, you just want to do your your CABCs and get them the heck out of there. For the kids who aren't that unstable, but who do require transport to a trauma center, if it's a trauma center that's nearby, you'll do a chest x-ray, you'll do a C-spine x-ray if it's indicated, and a pelvic x-ray if the patient is hemodynamically unstable or you suspect a pelvic fracture. And for CT imaging, that's best done at the trauma center. Those kids shouldn't be scanned in the community because they may very well end up being scanned again. Unless there's a very long transport time, you may want to scan their head and their belly just so the trauma center has can prepare for their arrival and whether they need to go to the OR or not. And Dr. Benno, checklists seem to be all the rage these days. Let's say you're at the point where you're preparing the patient for transport to a pediatric trauma center. We'll have a checklist on the EM Cases website for listeners to review, but can you go for us just the important points of a pre-transport checklist for us? Yeah, absolutely. This is a pretty critical part of a pediatric trauma patient's care because If they have a potential to get sick, it's likely to happen on transport. So first off, before the checklist, it's important that the referring facility promptly recognizes the need to transport and communicates early with the pediatric trauma center. Regarding the checklist, some of the important points that should be addressed include, you know, obviously ensuring that life-threatening injuries have been identified and addressed to the best of that hospital's abilities. That includes having the airway controlled if necessary with the endotracheal tube well secured and a plan for ongoing sedation and or paralysis in place. We discussed earlier that kids have short necks and the tubes can be dislodged easily. On the flip side, you want to ensure the tube's not too deep and that a chest x-ray done prior to leaving the hospital identifies the endotracheal tube above the carina. 
so that it's more likely to be in position on arrival. End tidal CO2 monitoring is very important to ensure inadvertent hyperventilation is not happening en route as well. Vascular access with an IV or an IO should be in place and stabilized. We recognize all too well the difficulty in getting big lines into small kids, especially if their volume deplete. So IOs are an important tool to use in the community if peripheral IVs are unobtainable. All equipment, including gastric tubes and urinary catheters, should be secured. If a pneumothorax is identified, a chest tube may need to be placed prior to transport and should definitely be placed for air transport. Other tasks include addressing analgesia and ensuring children receive pain control as needed for transport. If the pelvis needs binding, that should be done. Fractures should be quickly splinted and a dose of antibiotics administered for open fractures. If TXA is warranted, then it's best actually administered at the referring center to stay within the initial three-hour window of presumed efficacy and safety. As well, if the patient requires blood and blood is available, then that should be initiated. Massive transfusion plans do not need to be established for referring sites, in my opinion. It's best to then rapidly transport that child to definitive care. One of the other things we don't want to forget that's very, very important is that the imaging and lab results and all of the paperwork that accompanies that trauma patient should be made available to the transport team so that it can be delivered to the pediatric trauma center. And also, it's very, very helpful if there's communication with the pediatric trauma center that includes a call that the patient has left their center and is now en route with an expected time of arrival. Okay, yeah, great, so that they can prepare. Exactly. All right. So the last question I have for you is, you know, it's all kind of fine and dandy to talk about pediatric trauma care. But of course, when you're in the heat of the moment, you need to have the actual bedside skills. And we hardly ever see serious pediatric polytrauma. You know, it's so infrequent. Dr. Benno, how do you suggest that we develop and keep those really important bedside skills in managing the pediatric polytrauma patients so that when we do get that rare patient, we can be rock stars. Yeah, I think this is a very important question because we struggle with this in pediatric acute care all the time. So I think that there are a lot of ways to keep us up to date, a lot of traditional ways, including rounds and social media, EM cases, various other ways that we can all stay up to date in terms of knowledge around pediatric trauma. But ultimately, the most important skill and the most important training that we can utilize is the use of simulation. And it's very important that if you are looking after children, that you are involved in some sort of simulation program that includes kids, because this is really the only way to continue to test both your knowledge and your skills, your crisis resource management abilities, all of the very important and critical factors that are necessary to running a well-done medical or pediatric trauma code. You need both the knowledge and the skills. It's not good enough just to have one or the other. Well, with that, I thank you both very much for your expertise and your words of wisdom. It was very nice to meet you both, and I hope that we can cross paths again. It was very nice to meet you. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, we've run out of time for the big review, so I'd like to refer you to the show notes to help solidify your pediatric trauma knowledge, where we'll have the key points, some useful tables, decision tools, checklists, and algorithms for you to go through. And I'm also hoping that you notice that for the first time, we've introduced chapter markings at the start of each case or major section of this podcast. Hopefully that'll work for you so that you can go back to review as well. 
let me know if the podcast chapters don't work for you. Actually, the best way to solidify your knowledge after you've listened to the podcast once or twice is to read the written summary and the Just the Nuggets emails that you'll get about nine days after the podcast is released. But you need to have signed up for the EM Cases newsletter to get those emails. So if you haven't already, go ahead and do that. And then the last email on the Just the Nuggets set is a quiz that I encourage you to go through to test your knowledge. I'm also hoping that there'll be a set of rapid reviews videos that cover this episode in a few months that goes over this material again. We have about a dozen rapid reviews videos that we've released already covering a variety of the EM Cases podcasts. Now, before I sign out, just a big thank you to Rob Rogers and Salim Rizé for inviting me to direct the podcasting course in Lexington, Kentucky last month. Weingart, Jess Mason, Swami, Will Sanderson, Chris Kieran, and I, we all had a really great time learning from each other and teaching the 50 participants how to up their podcasting game. We're hoping to run another course next spring, so keep your eyes and ears open for the surprise location announcement. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Until next time, take it easy. Yeah.